But in any case, a reminder. Well, what is Hebrews? Well, Hebrews is an anonymous letter that was circulated among Jewish Christians in the first decades of the church's history. It was written as a kind of explanation and an encouragement to them, and it sets out to explain how what Jesus has done in living a perfect life and dying on the cross and then rising from the dead, how what Jesus has done fulfills the promises of the Jewish scriptures, satisfies the full demands of the law, and answers the big questions about how the God of Moses is actually going to rescue his people. And so that's what the first 10 chapters of Hebrews are exploring. But then chapter 10 kind of closes all of that out by saying this. This is their, their summary. It's where we left off back in March. The author writes, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hold those, those terms in your mind there for a minute. He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So, the big idea back when we stopped with Hebrews was that all the work has been done. That it's all complete. Because Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life to God, which means that Jesus actually did the thing that God's always saying that he wants people to do. And yet, despite living that kind of life, he, he goes to his death on a cross anyways. That In doing that, he enacts this kind of perfect selflessness that atones for the selfishness of everybody else. Furthermore, by rising up from the dead after doing all of that, it means that the work of Jesus is not just sort of retroactive, for all the people that came before that moment, but it's ongoing because he's ongoing. He's still alive. And so everybody's relationship with God has been reopened for all time, which is a pretty big set of actions to complete. It's why on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And that's where we left off. We left off with it is finished. But the thing about the book of Hebrews is that it wasn't written to people who felt like very much was finished, who felt very victorious. In fact, it was written to people who were being threatened and hunted from all sides. They were being, remember, it's to Jewish Christians. So it's written to people who are hated by their Jewish kinsmen for being heretics, being associated with a man that was executed. And also, they're hated by the Romans, who are increasingly afraid that they're part of some kind of insurrectionist rebel faction. And so for all the great work of Jesus, which was great, these people are still living every day in hiding, unsure of what to do. And that's where we, we pick back up. 
if it's true, I'm going to say this slowly, if it is true that Jesus has done everything that really needs to be done, then why are things still so bad? And if it is true that Jesus is the only one who could do any of the things, then what can we possibly do about the bad way that things are? Now there's this huge therefore near the end of the 10th chapter of Hebrews that starts to answer that question. But very quickly before we get to that answer, I want to say that there are two temptations, two dangers in how we look at God that can get in the way here if we don't address them right at, right at the start. And the first temptation is this. The first temptation is to see God as what William Pally once called a disinterested watchmaker. He creates this world and all its complexity the way a watchmaker might make a complex watch. And then he winds the world up and then he kind of lets it just run and do its thing. Which is to say that he's not all that invested in how things are actually turning out here. His main job here is all is all finished. And the danger here is that if we begin to feel this particular way about God, if we begin to feel this particular way, then we begin to realize that the things we do don't really matter to him and aren't really affecting the way that things go. So we can and we should do whatever we want, right? That makes the most sense. Do what you please. And the second temptation is to see God as the Puritans of New England and as the ancient Greeks and as every sports fan, including me right now, as my, my Atlanta Braves, beloved Atlanta Braves, are in a playoff game trying to go to the World Series, to see God the way we all do, which is as somebody who will do the things that we want him to do if we behave in the ways that he's asked us to behave. If I pray for the right things, God will listen and he will do what I want him to do so long as I've been sufficiently righteous. And the flip of that, right? Like, if things are going bad for me, it's probably because I've done some kind of wicked thing and I haven't, like, properly atoned for it or addressed it. So, the benefit of these two views, which have always been widespread through all time, I'm going to argue, Travis will give me grief about that later because I'm probably wrong, but I'm just going to assume basically for all time is that they both give us some sense of how to behave, which is the thing we want. We want to know how to behave. Do what you want, or do what God wants. But the book of Hebrews doesn't really fit into either of those patterns. Because here, the big work, like we said, the saving work has already been done. So there is no need for you to do anything to earn God's approval of you, right? But the world still doesn't look like it's supposed to look, which makes us think about that watchmaker who's not really paying close enough attention to how his creation is turning out. And it can make us wonder where God is. So can we be good Christians and like speed things up somehow? If we're already forgiven, does it matter what we do at all? It's... I told Dante earlier I'm in a metaphor drought this week, but then I realized that calling it a drought is its own metaphor. So maybe I'm back, baby. But anyways, I was thinking all week, like, what's an image that captures this? And I don't know that this does, but it's the one that I stuck with. And it's, it's, it felt to me like it's like a boat sank, and a thousand people end up in the water, and, and we are like among the first dozen or so who get pulled out. 
and we're cold, and we're still kind of scared. And there are others, 900 some odd others, who are in active danger. But we didn't rescue ourselves from that water, so we can't really do anything to help them. And so the question is, do we just kind of like hang out here, like with thermal blankets wrapped around us trying to get dry? Like, what do we do as this crisis like continues to unfold? We just kind of hold around, hold on until these rescuers who are slow, 2,000 years slow now, like get around to doing what it is they're supposed to do. Here's where Hebrews, I think, takes this question. In verse 19, the author picks up, therefore, this is that therefore I told you about. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and all that's the promises we talked about, that's the Jesus work, and then we get here. The author says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It probably wasn't written in a way that's super clear and helpful, but nonetheless, we get an answer. What exactly are we supposed to be doing in the midst of this already but not yet position that we find ourselves in, this mid-rescue position we find ourselves in? Well, we are to do these three things. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Hold fast to our confession without wavering and stir up one another to love and good works. And I looked at those things like over and over this week and thought, oh boy, this is like almost Greek to me. I mean, it was Greek at a time, but like even still. And so here's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to try and like parse these out. That's the work for today and see what we can do with these three things. So the author here points out that the work Jesus has done to restore our access to and our relationship with God is work that, well, is work that's intended to restore our access and our relationship with God. That's the thing. That's what the work was for. There's not much point in receiving forgiveness, in other words, if you're not going to pursue the person who forgave you. That's part of the deal. That makes logical sense, right? If you've been wounded by a friend, for example, and then you have extended forgiveness to that friend, it would be strange and even pretty hurtful if that friend took the forgiveness you're offering but still never talked to you or spent time with you. The ultimate goal of forgiveness, in other words, is restoration of a relationship. It's restoration of a relationship that's been broken. And yet, the author of Hebrews here is implying by writing any of this that there are some in the early church who 
have received God's forgiveness and yet are doing, are doing very little to pursue the relationship with Him that is now open to them. And for a Jewish Christian in particular, this is an even bigger deal because we're talking about all the symbolism of, of the Holy of Holies and the one temple that's in Jerusalem and then the curtain that separates God's place in the world from them being torn in two. Like the idea that this place you are never allowed to go is now a place you can go is a pretty big deal. And so the author here is saying, it's weird to me that you're not going, that you're not pursuing that relationship. And so the question is, why? Right? Like, why aren't you doing that? And the reason for that, I think, is the true heart bit in that, in that top answer. The good news about what Jesus has done is that there's no barrier between us and God any, anymore, which means that we can now go to Him. We can see Him. But the bad news is that the barrier between us and God is gone, and that means that God can also see us whenever He wants to. And it turns out, I think, that that barrier of our sin and the ways that that barrier kind of locks us out of fellowship with God can also sometimes be a bit of a crutch and a comfort for us because we can hide behind it a little bit. That's a little vague, so let me give some, some clarity if I can. I'd say you know the feeling when you're in a place that you're not proud of. And sometimes when you're in that place, the last place you want to go and the last people you want to see are people from your church community, your Christian friends. Because no matter how they nice they are, and they may be people who you love and who are super nice to you no matter what, you're still going to feel kind of bad and that's going to make you not want to do it. But we are not just invited here. We are instructed here to draw near with a true heart as honestly as we can. I once, I've used this illustration before, but I once heard a pastor speaking to a room full of teenage boys about pornography. And he said to them, a lot of times when you've slipped up, and you have looked at something that you know you aren't supposed to look at, you avoid God for a while because he's probably disappointed in you and you're embarrassed. But the truth is that when you mess up, God is the very first person you should talk to. Run to him right away because he wants to help. And I think that's a bit of what the author here is saying. They're saying, draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith that God is doing the kind of things that He says that He's doing, which is restoring all of creation to His intent for it. That's the God work, to restore creation. And as it turns out, like, you are also created. Like, you are part of that. So His work is to restore the creation to its intent. You're a part of it, so take advantage of the relationship that is being offered even if you feel afraid or scared or find yourself hiding. So I think that's the first thing. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith that God is doing what He says He's doing and that that includes you. The second thing we can do is to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, which is just as confusing. So, 
Here's what I'm going to argue that that means. I think if we break it down, this is what we find. If the Jesus story is true, the hope that we have is not in escaping this world to some other place. That would make no sense if the Jesus story as we have it is true. If the Jesus story is true, which is if Jesus didn't just die for sin but came back to physical life here, then the hope is in resurrection on this very earth. And this means that bodies matter, right? It means that the world itself matters. And it means that God is going to bring life to all of this in his own time. That's what the resurrection is this guarantee of. Like, I will take the dead thing, the abused thing, and I will make it whole and alive again. That's, that's the thing. But as we've seen, things in the first century did not feel much to the readers of Hebrews like God was doing this very quickly at least, that he was bringing resurrection for the Jews in the early church. And if we're honest, it's been 2,000 years since this letter was written, and it probably doesn't seem much like God is bringing resurrection now either. And yet, and yet, this is the thing we confess as Christians, the thing that we pray, the thing that we sing in almost every song. The very anchor of our faith is this. Jesus was dead. His life was fully over, and then he wasn't anymore. Death was not his end, which means that death is not the end, not for the things that are made like we are made, which Jesus was. So there is, by virtue of that thing we confess, that a dead person is alive again. What that means is that there is no, there's no limit to what God can do and when God can make things right. After all, Jesus was arrested, right, but not delivered after the arrest. He was wrongly convicted, which is a pretty big bummer, but not delivered after the wrongful conviction. Sentenced to death, not delivered. Hung up on a cross to die, still not delivered. Dead as a doornail, still not delivered. God is not bound by what we might think of as the final buzzer of things, which leads to a kind of crazy thought, which is that just because the game is over doesn't mean that God cannot still win it, which is hard for us to accept, hard to think about, but it's also the whole point of our hope. The whole reason to even be a Christian is because of that. Things seem terrible, but the end for us is not the end for God. And God steadfastly loves His creation. So God will do the stuff that God is wired to do, the stuff God does, which is to save and restore. And what we think of as the end that he needs to act by before it's too late is not the end for him.
So when we say we can hold fast to our confession without wavering, we are saying that we can keep believing something that is very hard to believe, especially when it feels hard to believe it, for the singular reason that Jesus is no longer dead. We may feel like we don't have a job to do right now. We may feel like we're on the sidelines of this whole thing, but we should not become discouraged even when things seem bad because we know that there is no real end for any of this, that the world is not disposable, that we are not disposable, that life doesn't really end the way that it seems to. And so God can and He will make time so you can take heart. I think this is what that means to hold fast to our confession without wavering. But what about the third thing? The first two, we should note, are pretty private and pretty personal, right? Actually pursue the relationship with God that you have been given. Remember that your hope is not in a finite world, but in a God who absolutely loves and will restore all the things that He's made. But this third one, it's about something that we do for each other, something, something that we do together. The author writes this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've probably used this illustration I mean, multiple times in the past, but remember the metaphor drought. I'm just like, you know, going back to all the old hits here. But nonetheless, this particular one holds up. You know what you already know. I'm going to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. I always do. I'm sorry. Anyways, there's this moment at the beginning of that book when the narrator shocks her first grade teacher by being able to read. I think we've talked about it, but if not, I'll remind you. So the narrator shocks their first grade teacher because they can read, and the teacher's trying to teach them reading, and so she's really annoyed that the kid can read. And so the teacher asks her how she learned to read, and she says as if it's the most obvious thing in the whole world that she taught herself how to read. And the teacher is incredulous about that, obviously, and the narrator holds her ground, and they don't get anywhere. And then to prove her point, the narrator remembers as far back as she can remember, and she thinks about how her whole life, every night, she would climb up into her dad's lap, and her dad's so old, and he's so frail, and he would read the paper out loud to her, and because he was so old and frail and his eyesight was so bad, he would have to hold his finger under all of the words as he read so he could follow along, and she would do that all the time with him, and that she taught herself to read, and like, that's obvious how this all happened. And of course, she never, in the book, in the movie, whatever, she never realizes, or at least never lets on that she has ever realized that this is how she was taught to do the thing. Here's the point. When we talk about stirring up one another to love and good works, we are not talking about legalism or guilt trips or big, inspiring speeches from me or anybody else. What we are talking about are the ways that we help each other discover that doing the right thing is something we actually want to do. How we 
run our finger under the lines and read out loud so that we can teach ourselves in this weird way that we actually want to do the stuff that's good. In the situation the early church finds itself in, Jesus has done all the actual work and God is being faithful to the nature of his plan. And it's easy, I think, or it would have been easy for people to just stand on the side. To go back to that odd shipwreck metaphor from the beginning, you're out of the water, you're watching the rescue crew work and there's not much to do, right? We're just sitting around. But what if there is? What if there is something to do? What if, what if... God is the one reading aloud to you and running his finger under the words. Which is to say, what if in the example of Jesus, we see a picture of what can happen in the meantime that would still be worthwhile? That we see in Jesus an example of what can happen in the meantime that would still be worthwhile. Maybe it's not the whole rescue that happens on the cross, but it still matters. So what if, instead of sitting there on your own, you were giving blankets to every new person who gets pulled up out of the water? Or what if you were checking on folks, going around making hot cocoa for people who are cold, right? Maybe sitting with people who are scared or grieving while they wait on their loved ones. What if your job isn't to be the rescuer? What if your job is just to be the kind of person that the rescuer saved you to be? How can we stir each other up to love and to good works? How can we be people who are eager to bring just a taste of God's kingdom here? And if that sounds like a vision that's worthwhile to you, then the real question, I think, of the third part of this whole thing is how can you ever pretend to pursue that on your own? Over the last year, a lot of hay has been made by pastors in this country out of verse 25 in this section here. The author here writes that we should not, quote, neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And with all the chaos in the world this past year and a half, it has made sense to many churches to insist on continuing to meet together out of a spirit of faith and even a spirit of countercultural resistance, maybe, no matter the advice of medical experts or legal mandates. And we did not follow that path here at Revolution, largely because it was important to me, more important to me, that non-Christians see Christians as people who love them and want to protect them, even if it means not getting to do something that we feel free to do. But there were other perspectives on that, but that's why we did what we did. And as it has become safer for us to meet again, I'll admit that it has been hard at times to recapture the sense of priority that we may have lost by making that trade a year and a half ago when it comes to gathering together, when it comes to worshiping together. 
to receiving communion together. But here's the thing. A church is not going to be able to run if we keep taking half the batteries out each week and then trying to turn it on. It is not going to be able to run. It's not going to be able to live out and testify to the taste of God's kingdom that we're meant to live out and testify to if we can't rediscover our sense of togetherness in this thing. Because here's the thing I think this is getting at. We need each other to be stirred up. We need each other for that. We cannot do that work ourselves. Those first two things, drawing near with a true heart, you can do that. Confessing hope, you can do that. But stirring up. And the point of all of this isn't, I hope that I have earned your trust enough that you will believe me when I say this. The point of all this is not to project health or to project growth or to feel good about ourselves. The point is that it's actually true that when things are hard in the world, when it seems like God's plan is either failing or just taking way too long, we have to lean on each other if we're going to really remember the promises that our hope is built on. We have to. We cannot trust them on our own. We can't trust those promises on our own. Because the best evidence we have to support what we believe is the love and the transformation that we see in each other. That's the best evidence. It is hard for me to see the stuff God is doing in me. But I can see what he's doing in you. I can see resurrection in your story that I struggle to see in my own. In you, I can be reminded that God's not bound by the game clock in your life, right? And then that can help me rediscover that he's not bound by the game clock in my life either. So we cannot abandon the habit of meeting together even when it is hard for us to do it and even when it feels like it's not working. Because it is in these interworkings that we have with each other that we get these little moments of truth and of resonance and of, well, trust that the stuff God is up to is good and will win. The author of Hebrews says all of this by reminding folks of how things were at the start. And they weren't good then either. They write, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, which is a great way to write, a great thing to write in any letter, honestly. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion, you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Hard times are not proof that God is against you. Hard times are what you should expect, maybe, if you're actually following in the example of Jesus. And when you're in the midst of those hard times, the best source of confidence 
is what you feel and experience and live out with other people. You experience and offer a glimpse of Jesus when you stand with people who are suffering. When you take compassion on those in prison, when you let go of your worldly possessions to help other people, you both experience and offer a taste of who Jesus is at the same time. We are not meant to stand on the sidelines and wait on this rescue to be finished. We are meant to live into the fullness of the hope that we have found. Which is to say, to make it simpler, we will discover more about Jesus if we follow after him. This isn't what saves us, but it is what remakes us. And if Jesus is proof positive that God is willing to actually get down into the mess of things with the people that he loves, we've got to be willing to do the same thing. So be here with your whole self. Love each other with your whole self. And your confidence, the confidence you have in the stuff that you believe will grow. And the reason it will grow is because you are exactly in the right place that you need to be in order to see it working.